0: CliffCentral.com. Good afternoon, everybody. Well, it's absolutely fantastic to be back on the show. I think we had an awesome time last week. And this week, once again, I am all by my lonesome. Um, You can guess where my co-hosts are, Mike and B2. They're still on holiday. They're still in Europe. They're still on the beach, lazing their asses around. But I have to miss, I'm, I'm quite chuffed with some of the guests that we've got today. In fact, I'd have to say that they're probably tenfold better, both in looks and intelligence. So yeah, Brett, yeah, Mike, you better start scratching up on your ability to not be on holiday. So we're going to have a huge uh, and exciting time discussing the future of data today. Um, and maybe it's a good thing that you two aren't around, by the way, because it will require some level of intelligence. So on today's show, and I'm really excited, is uh Lee Nike. And Lee is a bit of a legend in the digital industry. Um, he's the ex-Accenture MD of digital. He's the current CEO of TransUnion. And I believe he's going to be r- talking a little bit about his last hundred days in a blog that's coming up shortly, Have I just probably drop the bomb on that Lee. <laughs> um, and um, he's going to give us a bit of insight, kind of where is he going? He, he's been working in the in the digital space for a while. He is passionate about data. He's passionate about how businesses use data and where it's going. And especially in his new role at TransUnion, um, they're sitting on a ton of data. And it'll be interesting to get his views on where the future of data is going. So in today's show, we're going to look at Kind of where things were, you know, what was it like in the past? How did people use to store data on tablets written in stone all the way through to what's happening with data at the moment? I mean, I hear rumors that we're storing it on on DNA. I hear rumors of how we're going to start using our data and what it's, you know, what's important for. Also later on in the show, and I, uh, he's running a little bit late, is Brett Loebshire. Um, fantastic guy. Um, he's probably the better looking, and I'm only just saying that because it's radio. <laughs> um, he's ex mtn ex-Samsung, and he's now currently the CEO of WeChat Africa and WePay. Also, using vast amounts of data to change user experiences. Um, so I'm really pleased to have the guys on the show discussing this incredibly important topic of data. Um, but I'd like uh, to start off with Lee. Could you give me a little bit of background about yourself, kind of why you're excited
1: about data, and where do you see it kind of going, Lee? Welcome on the show. Thanks for having me, Brett. I'm not sure about the good looks or the intelligence, so (laughs) let's see how that goes for the rest of the hour, right? Uh, So a couple of things. I've been in the IT game, I guess, my entire life. This is only my second job. I spent the last 19 years working for Accenture, and the majority has been around IT transformation, so helping big companies solve really cool problems using the power of technology. And for the last three or four years, it's been around digital. And I guess back in 2013, when you and I alike said every business is a digital business, I helped companies figure out what to do with that entire phrase, how to make it happen. And now we're at TransUnion. So I made the big and bold move mm-hmm. to change jobs at the top of my game, I guess. Headed up Accenture Digital. It was going really well. And I said, let's change things up. And what did I do? I decided to follow the big 2017 trend. in many regards, I may have called the trend already back in 2016. But if anything, the one thing that was going to change in 2017 was that data was going to become the center of our ecosystem. Yeah. It was clear. We were surrounded with data back in 2016, but in 2017, there was this new oil that Gartner spoke about. There was this new economy coming together. There were these new partnerships, and the one unifying factor was going to be data. So why am I at TransUnion? Because maybe I'm hedging my bets. Untested as yet, but I believe that the future is based on data, and everything we do as organizations, as individuals, will be linked to what we know about each other, and we make decisions based on the power of data at our disposal.
0: Actually, for the guests out there who don't know what TransUnion is, um, just give the guys a little bit of insight on the kind of data you guys sit on. I find it fascinating.
1: Well, the first thing that fascinated me about TransUnion was is it's been around since 1901. Okay. That's forever, so, right?
0: Lee, come on. Dude, what are you doing?
1: Dude, I wasn't there. <laughs>
0: like a, coming nearly over – well, it is over 100 years. It's
1: over 100 years. I mean, that's incredible. So in many regards – TransUnion has been what we call a credit bureau, mm-hmm. and there are five bureaus in the country. And these bureaus get called up to check your affordability, or well, in many cases, Michael's affordability because he's not here on the beach. So he's probably you know, <laughs> using up all his money on unnecessary stuff.
0: Mike, if you're listening, your credit card's been blocked.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so if you're actually going to the conversation of saying, is Brett St. Clair, does he have the affordability to take on new credit? That's a role that TransUnion and its companies have done for many, many years. But I didn't join only because it's a really cool credit bureau. I joined about this massive pivot the company has made, and they've been asking the question, can we start to drive information for good? Mm -hmm. Can we use the power of data to solve that? And the data, bread is vast. We've got a vast amount of data about every individual, which we use for a named purpose, to be very clear. So we have certain rules and regulations on how we use data, But all about the person, your address, uh, the different accounts you may have, other attributes about the car you drive, Mm. your payment profile. Do you pay your accounts on time? I promise I do. And when you do that, (laughs) and we can check this for you, Brett. So we've got data that everybody has, but then we have what we call alternate data other stuff that helps give us a more cohesive view about you, the individual. And now we've got something called social data. And the big game right now is, can I start to augment my views about breadth of the person by seeing how you behave on Facebook? and God forbid, on WhatsApp, right? Mm. And if I could put these views together, will I know more about Brett the person? And could I target Brett with the right kind of services or figure out when Brett's unhappy and do something about it? So for me, it's quite exciting because... I've joined an organization that's pivoted, that says we've got the data, we've always had the data, now we've got some really cool IP, and that IP with really cool people can solve amazingly cool problems. What if we could be part of the engine room that solved financial and social inclusion for our country? What if data could find the next 1% of GDP growth? What if it's always been there and no one's asked the damn question? I agree
0: with you i mean i I like that thinking around uh, shifting the g d p and and we we do so little with data and I see it across many organizations we sit on this gold mine of data and yet nothing's been done about it and i, I I guess, like, how I want to kind of kick off the show is, is kind of think about where has data originated from. And I came across this fascinating infographic that kind of went back, and I was expecting it to start with, say, flippy, uh, flippies, floppies, and stiffies, right? <laughs> that doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound it right. Doesn't, does it doesn't,
1: especially if it's three and a half inch versus five with, and a quarter. With
0: five and a quarter. I'm perfectly, I'm going to go with the floppy then.
1: <laughs>
0: no doubt. Uh, <laughs> So um, it stores less, though. That's the problem, right? Anyway, that's where I thought they would start. But when they really digged into it, they started thinking about how was data first stored from from literally st- the tablet stones all the way through to rock paintings all the way through to when we first had the printing press. That is a form of storing data when they started writing books, printing books, and it kind of evolved And then we got into the era in in, in the early 60s, late 50s, where we thought we could actually electronically store the data get your zeros and ones and start to store it on some kind of magnetic device. And we could do things with it. We could start running uh, computational kind of processes on it. So if we want to add, if we want to subtract, and we started evolving that and I find it fascinating that a lot of businesses still only use data in the same way. And the reason why I say that is the PC era was part of this computerization of data. And what we're seeing is that the PCs had local storage. They weren't necessarily connected to the Internet. And they had local processing power. But they had a fabulous tool called Excel. And Excel was great, right? You could store your data in there. You could run some processes. But I think a lot of data has been lost in those kind of archives. Where has TransUnion kind of come from? Have you guys always been playing in the game of mainframes, I'm guessing? Do you have a whole lot of legacy systems storing your data? Was a lot of it manual paperwork? Kind of how has that kind of world evolved and what kind of systems are you starting to run just to at least store the data? I'd like to get a a, a sense of that, right?
1: As part of my transition into TransUnion, I came Mm. across a photograph of a person on roller skates running through a warehouse picking up content from files.
0: Ah. At TransUnion. So back oh, that's in the fabulous day, day, back in the day. Right? You've back got to tweet day, that. You've got to tweet I've that. I've got to
1: find that and tweet it for you. <laughs> but in many regards, that's the world we came from. We came from a, a world where switchboards were manual and you had an operator switching plugs, you know, RJ45 or some equivalent cable, you know, between ports on a switchboard. And in many regards, back in the day, we would be asked to find the file of the person. You'd find the warehouse, the column, the row, and go and find that file. So it did start start as archaic as you think, right? It probably goes back to, you know, the first conversations around the campfire, you know, with the tribal leader. Yeah, your stories,
0: oh. right? Even before then.
1: Correct. Because, you know, one way was to actually write it onto a tablet, Rosetta Stone style, and it mm-hmm. got to the Gutenberg with his typewriter and the Bible. But before then, our stories pervaded the universe Through conversation We kind of had that human changing of value Through voices, right? We passed the message on from each other So it kind of started there And I guess in many regards we became storytellers But one of the weaknesses of storytelling Is that we all add our flavor to it And I think that's an important point, right?
0: Interesting, right? You look at all the different religions Is that not an example of different flavors Of what was happening astronomically?
1: Absolutely Is that the right word?
0: Astronomy? Astronomically?
1: Could be. Could could be. be. Astrologically, maybe. Yeah,
0: that's probably better.
1: Probably better. (laughs) But I guess in many regards, we've, you know, there's there's this concept called the Tower of Babel from back in the Mm. day, where to kind of create this, stop this weird way of thinking, everybody started talking different languages. And I guess in many regards, regardless of language or kind of context, data is kind of that egalitarian type thing for me. It's the single view of truth. If we got down to it So back in the day, TransUnion Always, we started off with those files That had your view on every person We evolved to the mainframes And we've had mainframes for a long time For very My specific early days,
0: I used to be a mainframe developer, can you believe it?
1: And you're admitting that on radio?
0: Uh, on radio, and it's, it's quite dangerous, right? Because I used to be a cobalt developer And I think all the banks have just suddenly gone how much you dodge per
1: hour? terrible. So, it's terrible, right? So, so what's happened now is that what TransUnion's has done is that clearly as we move forward to, one of my favorite words is elastic, mm. an elastic age, elastic infrastructure, where you've got to spin up and spin down things and become very responsive to a changing environment. So we've invested a lot of money in building up our own private cloud infrastructure mm. that gives us the high-end analytics we need, things like Abenisho. Right, mm. or tapping into things like Hadoop and Cloudera. Now, very clearly, we're different to most organizations in that data privacy is very important. It's mm. so a lot of our infrastructure. It's privately held, but uses a lot of these elastic cloud concepts. You
0: know, like VMware. And-
1: Absolutely. So we get to use things like Hadoop and Cloudera mm. set up in a very different way for us, but we get the scale we need. So I guess there's two things to take away. One, we've moved a long way from having physical files mm. to having the large infrastructure Structure, store it but the cool stuff is not just in storing the data it's doing cool stuff with the data what you call Computational processing mm. So answering really cool questions By applying IP and context And smart people on their data So over the last few years And as we go forward We start to invest in really cool infrastructure To solve really cool problems in real time Or as close as possible mm. Because no one's going to wait For you to figure out an answer In 24 hours or 3 months or a year We need answers right now
0: Actually you, you, you've nailed that on the head I, I, I think back to my days when I was COBOL programming and all i did was write reports that had to be run on the mainframe now those reports could take up to two weeks to just run and the amount of you know processing i think we called them uh, mips and you would measure the cost by the number of mips that you would consume and literally the cost to run a report would go into the thousands of rands in processing power it would take two weeks and you know often we would miss what the actual requirement was. So to your point, I think you raised a really interesting point around smart people. Because if you're asking the wrong questions the whole time, that data is going to do nothing for you. You're going to keep on accumulating it, and you're going to keep on running these static reports. And if you are not asking these right questions, you're just going to end up costing a ton of money, right? So smart people, that's quite interesting, right? What do you expect from people? What do you look for? Because surely you must be sitting on a really bunch of smart puppies and data scientists that are really trying to figure out the right question to ask.
1: So my, probably my favorite phrase right now, it's been, it's been favorite for a while, I think. It's, I call it the what versus the how. Mm. And it's probably important to start there. When you talk about the what versus the how, the question is, what is this thing you're trying to solve? Because frankly, no one cares anymore about how we do things. And and we spend our entire lives and careers becoming really good at something like COBOL that's now become commoditized. So whether it's COBOL or Java or whether it's becoming a data scientist, these things are bound to become commoditized in, in due course. So that's important to recognize that when you're trying to solve a problem, Figure out the problem you're solving And as technologists Like in your example of your mainframe And your reports Just doing reports because the reports are cool No one really, no one really cares actually I remember
0: there used to be spools and spools of, of paper You'd, you'd rock up at your printer. desk And you would have paper A dot matrix print out That would be as high as you are Just stacked there And a human had to go through them uh, Figure out what, what insight was there yeah, absolutely. Sorry, so, yeah.
1: so I think the first thing is about figuring out what is the problem you want to solve because to drive your relevance as a bank or as a telco or as transunion we've got to be solving relevant problems or you yourself become commoditized let's start there mm. the second point is what skills do I need to actually execute on this mandate or my strategy now here's my point it's quite a brutal point but there are things that you're not so good at doing let's get real and let's figure out what you're not so good at doing you can ask my wife about that absolutely <laughs> maybe we'll call her later And the second we figure out what you're not so good at doing, the better off you're going to be. Why is that so? In the world of digital, we have this really cool thing called connectivity and the Internet. It's a pretty cool thing. It's quite new, I'm told. But what connectivity allows you to do is it kind of democratizes work. And that's a phenomenal concept that's currently making its way around 2017. We've spoken about
0: that a lot. I agree with you. Now, mark.
1: when you democratize the work, you start to figure, okay, I need cool people. Now, I've got tons of smart people. I've got hundreds of people that specialize in credit risk and analytics and building neural network models. We've actually built neural network models in this country, and they work, Brett. Well, so we've got the smart people. It's not
0: just all about Silicon Valley, right? Right. It's not. We've got the brains here.
1: It's not. And one of the big questions for us in Africa is, is Africa not the future of entrepreneurship? Because we're the same guys that came up with, you know, mobile wireless technology back in the day. Out of context, we couldn't get Fibre lines across the river and through these areas that had no roads, so out of necessity we created opportunity and maybe in the context of our current economy and our current continent we 're going to find a way to spur on growth in a whole new level. So the point about skills. I've got lots of people, but that's not the point. The point is that when you figure out the problems we're going to solve and you bring together many commodities, you start to come together in the right recipe, and the right recipe is what you need to solve problems. And that's quite a big way to think about it because you kind of recognize that you can't be all things to all men. You're good at some things. And if you break down the walls of collaboration and say, let's partner, we can do a whole lot more.
0: Fantastic. So, on that note, I'd like to welcome Brett. He's walked in, he's not sweaty at all, and he's looking absolutely fabulous, as we promise.
1: Plus, he's pretty good looking.
0: I told you he was good looking, right? You see, we can get away with that on radio, you know? Nice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I think we're going to let uh, Brett maybe catch his breath a little bit. How are you doing, bud?
2: Yeah, not too bad. Sorry I'm late. No it's worries. One of those uh, rushed Cape Town, ones. right? Yeah, yeah, I flew in this morning.
0: Yeah, i.e. right now, you've literally just walked in from the plane. Exactly. I'm so impressed.
2: Oh, well, it was, as you know, a last second arrangement yeah, between yeah, us, uh, but I'm yeah. glad to be here.
0: So, uh, fabulous to be here. Uh, we've just been talking about kind of where has data been? You know, how we stored it from literally the tablet era through to uh, sharing stories tribally, all the way through to even like what TransUnion's been through. They've been around for a 100 years. Can you believe okay. it?
2: So when, tab- mm-hmm. so, when you say tablet, I've missed the first part. So, when you say tablet, you don't mean iPad, right? I mean you know, like
0: Rosetta Stone stuff. Right. Yeah. Clay tablets. Clay tablets. That's I mean, that. well, what's that? Just pre Apple days, right? <laughs> just pre. <laughs> On
2: an evolutionary scale, it's just, pre-Apple just pre Apple days. Just pre.
0: So, actually, talking about evolutionary scale and. Um, the more that we're able to process data, the, the more data we are able to process. I was watching a, a video, a YouTube video, where I can't remember the gentleman's name. And, and he was talking about the evolution of artificial intelligence. Because he's saying that big data essentially is the backbone of artificial intelligence. When you combine all of this together... And I'm just thinking something that just rang true the whole time what he was talking about was in the early days of artificial intelligence and big data, 50, 60 years ago, and to your point, Lee, they weren't necessarily solving the right problems. They were trying to solve problems that were constrained by the hardware that they had. So it's literally taken 50 years of trying to figure out what are the problems that we need to solve and what are the algorithms that we're going to solve and we've hit this kind of tipping point mm. and this tipping point is a, a number of technologies that are starting to mature and I guess we're, we're entering the phase of what's happening right now and these maturity of technologies is cloud computing as you say being able to fire up um, el- elastic computing models, uh, being able to write algorithms and open source algorithms to be able to do machine learning, uh-huh. start recognizing tech. All of this is suddenly happening, and right. I think 2015 got really exciting. You know, we, we were able to get machines to do single tasks. Um, um, I, and, and I guess the, the kind of this evolution and how he described it was, we'll start off, if we had to compare it to animals, We'd start off like a mouse when it comes to intelligence. You know, we'd be able to squirrel our way around um, a room to find food. Then your kind of intelligence levels over the next 20 years would grow to a point that we would be able to be as intelligent as maybe a monkey that has some kind of social connections, um, is able to work in a community. And then it would get to a point that you'd get to the village idiot. I love that. You know, you get that village idiot who is not quite plugged into the community, but is able to think rationally. And then maybe you get to the level of intelligence that are clearly not Mike or Brett Lindsay, but you two in the room. And that starts kind of accelerating, right, in this evolutionary state.
1: That's a good thing, right?
0: It's a good thing, I think.
1: (laughs) Go on, trying to
2: work
0: it out. Go go on, go on. So the question is, are we going to hit that point? And then... It's going to overtake, right? Hmm. So isn't that quite fascinating? So like, I'd love to get your guys' views on where are we in South Africa in that evolutionary point? Are we anywhere near a stage that we're going to start overtaking when it comes to big data, analyzing the big data? Or are we still at the phase that we're not even a squirreling rat around a room?
2: Look, I mean, I'm I'm not a, a specifically a big data expert, mm. but the one thing I do know is that from an infrastructure perspective, I think we're quite far behind the curve mm. in South Africa. Um, you know, you look at the big cloud hosting providers; they don't have local instances.
0: Um, so she could point right yeah. so, so I mean, that chases people away right
2: well, it does um, so, and it's also i don 't know if the question is really that relevant from a South Africa perspective. I mean you know with um, machine learning and uh, number crunching for, uh, a, a big Dataset, for example, uh, you know, if you've got four, 500 milliseconds of latency, it's sort of irrelevant um, because the output is not required to be real-time. So not necessarily having – and I know I'm busy contradicting myself now, trying to think through the, the answer to this question. Mm. But not necessarily having the hardware on the ground locally shouldn't be an, a barrier of any sort. Mm, mm. Um, but I, I don't know from yeah. an enterprise I mean, that could be a regulatory money.
0: barrier and a latency barrier possibly, right? Yes,
2: yes. Yeah. Well, depending on what uh, domain you're working in, I suppose.
0: What about what South African businesses do with data? So like, one of the reasons why I wanted you on the show, Brett, is what you guys do and the volume of data and the volume of transactions that you guys deal with mm. surpass even what the banks do. I mean, well, surely I that's a challenge, right?
2: <laughs> Look, I don't think our transaction volumes are anywhere near bank uh, level mm. when we're talking about the big banks in SA. But I think that we are… Quite efficient in figuring out what to do with that data mm, I, I think the big problem with um, with big data Is people think that just having the data Is a solution in and of itself And it really isn't um, What we really should be uh, lo- thinking about from the ground up uh, First principle thinking in effect um, Is what do you want to know uh, with mm. the data that mm. you have access to. And I think we, we've been in a lucky position because we were able to build uh, the frameworks for analyzing the data from the ground up because it's a brand new product. So reverse engineering that into a big organization I think is challenging.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, that's, it's that legacy problem, I guess, that. Um, Lee and I have suffered uh, both working with large organizations where you have that historical mainframe, you have these systems that don't talk to each other, that don't sure. transfer data around, right. and then we've all got to spend time moving data around to get it into an Hadoop stack mm. and start analyzing that. And I guess uh, I look at some of the problems we've had in the bank. We've gone ahead and invested heavily in that space. But then as we start asking the questions to your point and solve the right problems, mm. we're realizing the processing power that we need is not 200 cores, mm. but we need 200,000 cores mm. sure. to get us the question to process that.
1: So, I mean, so maybe a couple of points, right? Mm. Worth noting. So I've been quite controversial in my IT strategy roles over the mm. many years. The reality is that it isn't cool to have your own stuff lying under your desk anymore.
0: Can you mm. speak to more CIOs, please?
1: So let's get this message out there. <laughs> so,
0: so if we're going to be controversial, we're going to pick on somebody Well, yeah. listen, the reality the CIO is… Well, mentality, right? Well,
1: the CIOs know this already. Mm. We've got to keep provoking the message that to mm. be sustainable as a business, to keep the cost in check and to drive revenue, we've got to think differently. It comes to the what versus how thing. Mm. If you're not so good at doing something like providing a tier for a data center then don't provide a Tier 3 data center. Let somebody else do it. Now, in South Africa right now, we have tens of petabytes available in available capacity in all the Tier 4 data centers. Pick up the phone and ask somebody to give you a proposal for what you need. Asking the board for billions of rands to build a new data center is not what you should be doing. So the first point is that we've got the available infrastructure. You know, it isn't the connectivity, Brett, or the... uh, the actual technology, that's the problem. The impediment in many regards is our emotional attachment to what we've always known mm. and how we've always worked. So that's the first thing. The second point is that we do have things that worry customers. So, for example, things like cross-border data movement. When your data leaves the country, what legislation will you come across? Mm. How do you preserve the lifetime value of the data? Will it be treated correctly, etc., etc.? But in many regards, some of these questions that are being asked today aren't questions that have impeded things like mobile banking. Do you know where the server is behind your mobile app? Not really. You're assuming that the bank has the checks and the balances, has the auditability in place to make that happen. So in many regards, we've already started the journey to big data And no one knows about it. So is it a conversation that can progress with the right sponsorship? I for one think so. In many regards, we've started that and we are the same guys holding us back from progressing. Now let's be clear. There are things like data classification, data strategies that help us think about what is sensitive to what we do versus what can be, you know, de-identified and put into a cloud to get elasticity on tap when we needed it, just for our burst requirements. These are all things that are possible. But I'll come back to a very simple point. Whether it's the CIO or the chief data officer, ask yourself, are there things that you're doing that is valuable for your organization. And should you not be partnering with somebody else to get you the elasticity, the data, the quality you need? And ultimately, if you're not solving problems that your business is facing and just solving cool technology problems because you read a really cool magazine, mm. no well, one cares.
0: I, I, I want to install Hadoop because I've heard it's really awesome and look great on my
1: CV. Because as a CEO, <laughs> they could care less about the technology or what we do back at the ranch, mm-hmm. like this conversation, right? They don't really care about the conversation and only so much more that they care about what value does it add to my business. Will it find me the next million clients to profile and target from a segmentation? Will it find me a better upsell opportunity? Will it find me better customers to not take on because they are potentially bad debt customers? Mm. And Those are the things that CEOs care about and in many regards, the data professionals like us need to think about the narrative we put forward to business stakeholders. What's that common language we speak, Brett, that allows us to be relevant in their lives because right now we're not
0: so you're telling me the future of transunion is a software as a service platform data as a service right
1: it's as you're, a service you're for sh- sure
0: you're providing the hardware infrastructure you're uh, allowing them to literally connect through an api and use the service as and when they need to do it.
1: So here's the shocker. Right? We've been doing that for years and years and years. <laughs> yeah, all right. So if, oh. you, if you're in the bank and, you, and mm. you talk to us for any of the services you need, you either do it in a batch mode or in online. So we have always had the APIs, which are the basis for an as-a-service economy model. That's there. The provocation will come forward where we start to say, what outcome can we solve as industry players for the clients we want to serve? And they would say, I don't care how you do it. Let's talk about the outcome you're going to deliver.
0: So action. Now, that's an interesting point on big data. At the moment, we've all been obsessed about the story that big data can tell us. So we've been obsessed about gathering the big data, storing the big data. And I guess the challenge is how do we take action? Now, Brett, how do you guys take action? I mean, you guys have uh, users that are using your platforms the whole time. That ability to be able to respond and provide more personalized or contextual services, that must be fundamentally key.
2: It is. And I think this goes back to what we were saying earlier. Um, I really like the point that's been made about the emotional attachment to uh, legacy architecture. Mm. I think that's an extremely big barrier that uh, is not necessarily simple to overcome. But I I think the the thing that's helped us more than anything is – what I mentioned earlier is starting from the ground up. So we're able to measure data points of how people are actually using the application. So we don't – I mean, it's, it's anonymized data. So what we do is we collect um, um, groups of user behaviors to try and figure out what's working in the app and what's not beautiful. and yeah. then improve the app generically to suit what most people seem to be doing uh, instead of trying to uh, make our own product decisions. You know, and uh, The beautiful thing – with um, the technology we've got now is that there are really, really reliable, real-time ways of analyzing that behavior and that data and doing something about it. So the, the, the biggest thing that it gives us is response time. I think that's the single most important thing it gives us in our organization.
0: So I, I keep going back to – we talk about agile a lot on the show. Mm-hmm. And, and the methodology of Agile. And I think underpinning that and underpinning digital businesses is data, right? Mm. How we respond to that data, how quickly we can respond to it. Um, and even though you might be able to respond quickly, I bet your teams have been well geared to make the changes quickly and get it back into the market very quickly and start analyzing the next set of data points, right?
2: Yes. So, I mean, you mentioned Agile. We, I think it's critical to have not only – The technology framework that facilitates that but also the team structure that Mm. facilitates that because if you've got um, uh, what typically happens in big corporations and big enterprise is uh, layers of bureaucracy – it breaks down anyway, even if the te- the technology tools are there. So you have to figure out how to break through uh, the bureaucracy layers and, and, and maybe even sideline a group of people and set them up as a separate organization so that they can get rid of the bureaucracy. It goes back to what Lee was saying. It's, it's about the emotional barriers. And the bureaucracy is in place for a reason. You know, these- Not Because
0: we used to have to – Reduce the risk through manual processes Exactly
2: (laughs) But now we've got tools that do that better Than than, uh, the processes So rely on the tools Uh, The the emotional uh, difficulty comes in When you realize that there are people Who may not necessarily feel That they have a role to play anymore Um, But I don't think that's always true uh, what, what we found in our team, um, and look, we're a very uh, young little company. We've been running for three and a half years, basically, um, on the mm-hmm. continent. Um, what I have found is that if you give people the freedom to be creative and um, to explore new avenues, um, they adapt to new types of roles I- incredibly quickly. Um, and people actually rise to the challenge. We, we feed on new things as humans. Uh, so all you've got to do is give people a, a safety net for that, and it helps a lot.
0: That's that fell fast, right? Yeah. Just encourage people to keep on trying, keep on innovating. Sure. But I think, again, data underpins that, right?
1: Mm.
0: Um, you get to businesses like Google, like Facebook, who only make decisions around what the data tells them. And I remember when I joined the bank and we, we looked at our digital stack, there was not one piece of analytics that was there to try to tell us how the user was using our, our digital assets. Mm. Essentially, we were flying blind. I mean, the first stage that we spent in in, in, in this role was literally fixing how we go about um, putting in the analytics, starting to understand the questions that we want to ask. And, and I guess it's part of that legacy transition. Back in the legacy days, that kind of data was not important. It was more important to analyze the kind of income revenue that was generated and that the transactions were stable, that kind of back-end stuff. No one really put much thought into data and the user the user experience, right?
1: Well, I think the point is that organizations worked very differently to the way they worked 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Mm. We didn't have as much competition across most sectors. So whether you're a bank or a telco or a retailer, you didn't have as many options. In the retail sector, you're now competing with a physical brick-and-mortar store – with a online store that has no physical presence, and where Tebow touches the brand ambassador for a men's line that doesn't physically exist. Mm. So the mm. competition is very varied. It's coming from nowhere. So in many regards, if you're a brick and a mortar establishment, whether you're a bank or whether you sell physical goods, you've got to reimagine the way you work to drive your relevance. So, in some regards, Brett, Brett's point is important, but there's another point we can't lose. It's easy if we start and we're born digital, born natively as an entrepreneur. When you're a bank... Lee,
0: Lee, you're a millennial, right?
1: Not really. I'm your age, right? Yeah,
0: bugger. Just, he just looks young. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No, the point is, the, the point
2: actually, you, you look a lot younger than Brett. <laughs> a
0: lot. Thanks, like Brett. Fifteen years, easy. And I'm just going to keep calling this Brett thing, so no one knows which Brett we're talking about.
1: <laughs> which is why Brett Saint Clair's got a radio show and a TV show, right? <laughs> but, but, but to make my point is that if you're a brick and a mortar establishment, mm-hmm. you've got to rethink your your game in real time. So, do we have the burning platform to have this conversation? Absolutely for sure. Is the organization enabled to get the CEO and the board what they need? Probably not. And that's the point from earlier. If you think of the continuum of you asked where is BI, you know, we've got what we call BI that goes to descriptive, then goes to prescriptive analytics. We can talk about all the cool, sexy stuff today, but we haven't got the BI working yet, mm. the basic stuff. I, yeah, I agree with you. We, we still
0: haven't figured out the questions we want to
1: ask of our data, right? So my, my very simple mantra and I'm a very consistent guy if anything, breath both of you. What I would say is the following. What's the question? Mm. What are the two things we need to know about our business, whether it's digital analytics, about revenue? If we start there, the how is not the hard part. We've got friends here, got friends everywhere to solve that together with us. Capabilities, IP, people—we can solve those things because we aren't in the bleeding edge anymore. When it comes to data, there are people out there that know what's going on. Now, I've got to drop this—this this, my definition of data science, just to put it out there. People try to confuse these acronyms and get in you know, a very fancy words. Mm. For me, data science, which I think what CEOs want to hear about is. What you don't know, you don't know. That's my version of what data science means to me. There's so much we have sitting in these mounds and mounds of data. We haven't taken this time to respect the data, take her out on a date, buy her some flowers, you know, ask her what she's thinking. Because that's the kind of role that data is going to play in our lives. And that's for many reasons why I joined TransUnion. We've got the data flowing through this, the digital economy, the digital body. Are we stopping to figure out what's really going on? We become so consumed with these trends and all the dynamics when you may be sitting on the answer all along and no one's asked, Brett, what is the data telling you?
0: It's all fragmented, right? It sits across hundreds and hundreds of different systems and we haven't spent the time to connect the dots, right? Mm -hmm. I think we need to connect the dots. and I think the tools and technologies, it's there, it's out there. Talking about connecting dots, and I'm just thinking about the kind of skill sets available. Now, in the digital space, we know Java developers are like gold dust. It's it's, it's impossible to find these guys. There's just not enough guys doing it. And I see this world of of being a data scientist and really interpreting uh, what data we have and putting in the, 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 the compute power to be able to answer these questions for us in the right way and write the right algorithms, I think that's the next skill that's going to be at risk. However, I think that there's a massive opportunity in Africa, and especially in South Africa, because of the SKA. Now, the SKA is a square kilometre array. And they're sitting on about, I think they said 27 um, satellites that are looking up into the sky that make up meerkat. I can't remember the exact figures, but it was something along the lines of 100 terabytes of data is pulled from those satellite dishes per minute. Hmm. And that's only 27. They're going to grow to 250 in Meerkat and then a further 700 in the full square kilometer array. So these guys have supercomputers on site. That they literally swap out every 12 months because of Moore's law not being able to keep up with the volume of data that they're trying to crunch down just to get it transferred across dark fiber down to Cape Town where they, IBM, I believe have built this massive supercomputer cluster to try crunch that data down even further to be able to put it onto the cloud for the international astrology community. Now, the interesting point is. As we sit here with these challenges, and I feel that we're still quite far behind, they reckon in the next two to five years, we need to generate 2,500 data scientists in South Africa just to support that project. Now, is that not an opportunity? You spoke about moving GDP by 1% because of data. Here's this beautiful example of doing just that for the SKA. What do you see the impacts of that volume of skill and talent on the South African or African kind of view on data? I mean, surely the impact must be massive, right?
2: I, I would hope so. Um, I think the the real problem is that we – what seems to happen at the moment, and we face this uh, challenge in our team, is finding – Developers, I mean, you say they're, mm. they're like uh, mm. gold dust. Not just uh, Java developers, just generally any developers that have skill sets in working with big data or mobile-specific applications—they're very hard to come by. And what 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 we've uh, what we've seen that's happening is these guys are snapped up straight out of university and popped into big corporations.
0: Mm. Sorry, we do that. Sorry.
2: But it's because there's a skill shortage, mm. and the trouble is, if you look at the way the student loan framework works in South Africa, these guys have to start earning money immediately mm. uh, to start paying back the loan, or they're in serious trouble. They ha- so they go for the safe big salary, you know. And and this is the reason That's you end problem, up with right? a loss of um, of innovation coming from those guys. They they get gobbled up by the big enterprises, um, and there's we've got to find a way to solve that first of all. So I think that opportunity is there, but. I have a feeling or a sense that even if we start some kind of program to drive students toward data science, one of the most in-demand jobs on earth at the moment, uh, they'll just get snapped up by corporation anyway. So we have to figure out how to build um, frameworks that give them a safety net uh, to -hmm. to do some innovative stuff because Mm -hmm. what you really need is – The guys with those types of skill sets and levels of expertise to build new frameworks and new products to help us analyze and work with our data in a more efficient way, not to try and fix legacy problems.
0: You've got a good point, right? These guys join the large organizations, and we're we're part of that. Apologies. And what we end up doing is we put them on remedial tasks because they don't quite have the experience because they're junior. And then you will fix a report now for the next year and a half. Mm. And I guess the opportunity and and a framework – that we could put in place is that if you don't work for the large organizations, yeah it might not be as juicy a salary, but the opportunity to work on incredible projects and I think that's really important because the exposure is what 's going to accelerate your skill and 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 the experience right
1: so so maybe a couple of points regarding skills I think the point brett. We're going to need to reimagine how education happens. Mm. The reality is that Brett's going to steal as many people into his bank as they come out of university. Mm. So we've got to come up with some kind of abundance mentality approach around feeding the front end of the skills funnel. Now, I'm a huge fan for this, what we call democratization of the workforce. I believe there's ways to acquire skills that challenge the orthodox ways of doing it via universities and some other design school.
0: Possibly like micro-jobbing, hey, Brett?
1: Well, micro-jobbing is one thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't talk about your failed successes. Brett, huh?
0: Sorry, Brett, we for everyone learn, out there. It was a learning
2: opportunity. Brett,
0: a Brett and I were both involved in Money for Jam. He was, he was the chairman of the business. <laughs> I know
1: this, and I'm trying not to be well, associated well, with you guys. Right. So anyways, it, it's a learning experience, chaps. right? We've yeah, learned a lot. We've learned a lot. What right? I would say is the following, though. But so, I think we're on board with you, right? Agree. So there's two things. Micro-jobbing is a second step, right? And it links to your earlier point about entrepreneurship. But before we get there, how do you acquire skills and knowledge? So if I told you, Brett St. Clair, that what you have from a skill and experience is irrelevant to your job, you'd say, oh, my God, I need to take a month sabbatical or a year sabbatical and acquire a new skill from some fancy university. Now you can learn these same skills I'll do an
0: MBA and then I'll tell everyone about it.
1: I know you (laughs) will. I know so there's many jobs like data science, like economics, like yeah. digital, that you can acquire in new ways that you could never do before. We call them MOOCs, Massive Open mm-hmm. Online Courses. And the biggest names are behind them. So Melinda and Bill Gates are behind the Khan Academy, right? And we've got other things like MIT. MIT, Stanford, Virginia. Virginia is known as the guys that are really good at design thinking. That's why I learned my design thinking mm. online mm. via a MOOC because I wasn't caring of whether I had my certificate or not. I cared whether I knew the content to do my job better. So I think that's an important thing. And you're starting to see, for example, Coursera teaming up with LinkedIn to get badges mm. on your profile for certain commoditized courses. So maybe in future, Brett, you will solve the funnel problem by saying if you could democratize learning and what we call a learning management systems – Start to take structured education and also promote unstructured ways and put those together. You're going to feed the funnel. Mm. Now, the second point about micro-jobbing, I'm a massive fan of what we call the gig economy Mm. or virtual marketplaces. If it's working in China, it should work here. Mm. In China, there are over 10 million people that use a virtual marketplace to get jobs done. So we know the model works. We need to be open as organizations to saying, I don't care where Brett sits and how he looks – I do care that the job gets done.
0: I think if they did care, they they wouldn't have hired me.
1: Clearly, something's changing. (laughs) Something's changing at the bank. But if we can get the banks to apply that rule generally, I don't care how I look, where I work, what laptop I use only that the job gets done. So the democracy of the workforce will change the way education happens, the way the gig economy comes into play. Do I really care You know, who does a commodity job like taking a GPS waypoint or putting together a pretty version of my proposal? Does someone really care? Not really. When we get over the emotion, Brett, Mm. then we can do this future workforce and the workforce will promote a new way of learning. So
0: I think that's fascinating. I think we, we, we'll we probably use big data to solve that, right? Uh, contextually target and hyper-personalize the content around MOOCs and all that kind of stuff. Mm. I think it's at this point we need to kind of look forward. I want to challenge you guys. Mm. And I want to challenge you guys in two areas. Um, the first area is I'd love to get your views on the storage of data because I think we're hitting – seriously exponential volumes of data. Mm. And then at the same time, the use of data. And I think the use of data is going to emanate in some form of artificial intelligence. So I'd like to start off by, let's first of all look at where is storage going? Because my sense is storage is becoming sexy again. We're starting to see storage happen in memory it's no longer on a physical SSD, so yes, albeit it's very expensive at the moment, but I think we've got things like graphical processing units that are starting to enable that to happen. Um, I read something crazy, and I think this might be controversial, and I don't know if it's my DNA or your DNA, Brett, but apparently we can score, uh, we can score, we can store two hundred and fifty nine petabytes of data on one gram of Lee's DNA. Now, isn't that fascinating that storage might shift to a biological kind of format? Mm. Where do you see this volume of data kind of challenging us and where is it going to come from?
2: Uh, The the biological storage um, concept is super fascinating. Mm. If you think about what DNA really is, it's just code for biology. Yeah. I mean, your DNA, our DNA, everyone in this room is exactly the same as the DNA of an oyster. It's made up of the same basic components. There's four different types of molecules that make up a DNA strand. And in humans, anyway, there's three billion base pairs that sit inside one DNA. One Three billion base pairs in no. your DNA strand and, okay. and mine so base pair is where you know it 's got the uh, so DNA looks like a, a twisted ladder, the yeah. spiral helix, and where the two l- rungs of the ladder meet in the middle is where those two of the four molecules meet up and they form a code base, and that 's what it is it 's software for life, um, so using that and manipulating it to the degree where you can store other information in it, this has already been done. Um, So if you look to um, uh, J. Craig Fenter, the man who actually decoded the human genome, um, they did a fascinating thing where they injected a completely manufactured DNA strand um, into a single-celled organism and they kind of booted it up uh, and it replicated. So they made an artificial life form. This was back in 2010, by the way. Oh, my God. Um, and part of the DNA strand that they injected into the nucleus of the single-celled animal um, encoded all the names of the scientists that were oh. part of the part of the project. So it's already possible to do this. It's just really not scalable now. But the volume of data you can store is astronomically higher than uh, what we currently have. I mean, with um, solid-state drives and bubble memory and all this, it's really not even remotely close to the, the volume of data you could store biologically if you can find a way to scale it.
0: Sure. And where do you think this data is going to come from? I mean, if we're growing data that exponentially and we have yet to figure out the data we currently have, where is it coming from?
1: Well, it's coming from all around us. Mm. So when we talk about IoT or Internet of Things, you start to talk about billions and billions of sensors giving you inputs. Now, we talk about smartphones being the bee's knees of, of technology. What's really cool is the sensors in the devices, right? Like my phone has 14 different sensors on it, right? If you add up all these sensors, we're predicting as much as over 200 billion sensors online by 2020. Now, there's a car that's been launched recently, an electric car, that's generating as much as 250 gigabytes of data every hour being uploaded. So cars are becoming connected. They're going to push data onto the cloud, onto storage. I actually had a, had a chance last year to ask uh, J.B. Straubel, who's the co-founder of Tesla, exactly that question. When did the state of start? a co-founder? Start of Tesla motors.
0: There's a co-founder? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't even know that. That's incredible. Yeah, have got to use the internet, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So, so, so J.B. Straubel is actually the guy that specializes in the battery technology. But I was asking him a question about data and sensors. So the first time I heard about data, sensors and the Tesla was when they first launched their vehicles and there was an incident with fires in the U.S. So the the car would scrape the the, the top of a rock on a freeway and because the batteries at the bottom of the car, they would catch on fire. So quite a smart thing because they had the sensory data... All they did was push a firmware update over the air to not lower the suspension when you went into a freeway. So as opposed to doing a massive recall of the cars, they issued a firmware update and they solved the problem in the short term before they could do the recall. So I asked him the question, you know, when did you guys figure out about this data and when it will be useful? He says, Lee, we never knew how useful the data would be. We just put sensors everywhere and we hoped at some point to figure it out. So, I think that sensors are becoming cheaper and cheaper. We're not talking about a few cents to drop an active RFID onto a device, onto a desk, onto a chair, onto your mattress, right? You're going to start to get sensors everywhere. Well, that's, <laughs> there's actually a product in the U.S. Yeah. that has active sensors in your mattress. It allows you to send a tweet automatically to let you know, okay, Brett, there's activity on the wrong side of the bed. And you're not and you're there. Not there. <laughs> <laughs> so it's happening. So I guess the point is that sensors everywhere and the data is going to start to come out of everything. It's what you do with it. Now, we haven't got a head around today's data. It's become extremely complex, which is why we got to partner with The broader ecosystem Figure out how we can tap into Processing the data Like the SKA can We've got to get better at partnering To get our head around the data
0: That's amazing I just think we're entering this very exciting Kind of phase And guys, we're literally going to start wrapping up now And I I want to just kind of Try summarise A little bit about what we've discussed today Um, It feels like to me that data is underpinning everything that we do. It's underpinning all t- digital technologies, it's underpinning uh, the way that we set up our cloud compute instances, to how we understand the intelligence of machines, um, the unlimited storage and Access to all of this is completely being revolutionized mm-hmm. into biological DNA strands, which I think is fascinating because we could end up growing mm. storage, mm. um, which will be interesting to see how we, how we populate those storage devices. I'm fascinated to understand when we get to those high terms like zettabytes. I don't even know how many bytes are in a zettabyte. Lots of zeros. Lots and lots of yeah. zeros, right? And I wonder how this is going to impact on, human, on humanity. Is this going to help us improve our knowledge as humans? Or is it going to have the counter effect where it could end up being a detriment to society? That there's so much information out there that the artificial intelligence machines are making decisions that may not be for the benefit of humanity. Or or will it be as, as kind of Elon Musk envisioned? And I, and I know Musk is... One of Brett's man crushes, and I share that same man crush, Brett, um, that maybe data will end up helping us become not just better humans, but interplanetary humans, and that this data and artificial intelligence will actually help us explore these adventures beyond what we see every single day in today's society. So I'm incredibly excited. I'd love… Just a kind of passing thought from each of you on on a summary on on kind of where you see this final endpoint on data, Brett.
2: Like any new technology, it's just a tool. And how we use it determines the outcome, right? So – um, I think you know Elon, Elon Musk's concern with AI that we would be summoning the demon, and having these computers that have almost infinite knowledge about us and how we behave and what we do, and then do something uh, negative with that data. It is a possible outcome. However, uh, the the uh, the good side of how we use um, uh, huge volumes of data. Um, Perhaps comes through In something like The quantified self movement Where we have sensors All over our bodies um, Mm. The the next generations Of smartphones And wearables And whatever they are And get alerted Forty-five minutes before we're about to have a heart attack. Um, that may not be data that we necessarily consume, as in reading something or looking at a statistic. But that's life-saving data that helps us as individuals. And so, I don't think there's a good or bad answer to this. It is, it is going to be what we make it. But the tools are there, and I think it's a very, possibly, the most exciting time uh, in all of human history right now.
1: Lee, twenty seconds. Very quickly. Data's here, it's happening right now. It will keep growing. Humans shouldn't be completely threatened in two ways. One, there are new jobs being created like in data science and other things that will allow us, if we want to, to change who we want to be and drive our own relevance. And I do live in the hope of Asimov's laws regarding robots. Mm -hmm. And I do believe there's checks and balances that are required to provide a coexistence between robots and humans. And that's what Elon Musk and Bill Gates are asking. How do these things coexist? Mm. And that's the big question, I think, for 2017.
0: Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us today. Everyone, please follow us on at Futurology Show. Be part of the solution. Be part of promising a future of data in Africa. Thank you. Thanks. Cliffcentral.com